The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. And for tomorrow night as well, as a matter of fact, I know of no better topic for us to discuss until we all die. This is a poem by Hafiz. The subject tonight is love, and for tomorrow night as well. As a matter of fact, I know of no better topic for us to discuss until we all die. You know, I, uh, I opened a Dharma talk with this poem something like 10 years ago. <laughs> and one, so I went back and I was looking at it and what I had to say, and I thought, oh, this is good. I need to figure out what I've learned. <laughs> Because this process uh, is ongoing. It's not like you learn something and then you've got it, right? It's a matter of practicing how to be in the world. And one of the reasons that I'm interested in this topic is that what I've noticed is non-love. Not the opposite of love, but the absence of love, the absence of realizing that we all just want to be happy, that everybody wants to be happy, that everybody deserves to be happy, that we deserve to be loved. And we go through this life that, that we encounter every day as we walk out on the street, and the edges get harder and harder, and we, we find ourselves closing down. And I'm, I'm aware of this feeling that, that everybody's just a little closed down. <laughs> you know, we're, not, we're, not really, we're not really open to one another. And there are a lot of reasons why that's true. So, having read something by Hafiz, this is what the Buddha had to say. So he had the Metta Sutta. How many of you are familiar with the Metta Sutta? Some. Okay, so I'm going to read it. It's really short. Because I want to refer to it in the beginning, the middle, and the end. To reach the state of peace, those skilled in the good should be capable and upright, straightforward and easy to speak to, gentle and not proud, contented and easily supported, living lightly and with few duties, wise with senses calmed, not arrogant and without greed for supporters, and they should not do the least thing that the wise would criticize. They should reflect, may all be happy and secure. May all beings be happy at heart, all living beings, whether weak or strong, tall, large, medium, or short, tiny or big, seen or unseen, near or distant, born or to be born, may they all be happy. Let no one deceive another or despise anyone anywhere. Let no one through anger or aversion wish for others to suffer. As a mother would risk her own life to protect her child, her only child, so toward all beings should one cultivate a boundless heart. 
With loving kindness for the whole world should one cultivate a boundless heart. Above, below, and all around, without obstruction, without hate, and without ill will, standing or walking, sitting or lying down, as long as one is alert, may one stay with this recollection. This is called a sublime abiding here and now. Whoever is virtuous, endowed with vision, not taken by views, and having overcome all greed for sensual pleasure, will not be reborn again. That's it. The Buddha repeated this over and over. May all beings be happy. May we all have this for every wish, this for everyone. May we all be happy. Contented. This opens up with that very simple, to reach the state of peace. To reach the state of peace. What is peace? What do you think of when you think of peace? Probably not happiness, although it's happy to be at peace. I'm happy at peace. But what does peace represent for you? What does, what does peace feel like? The momentary stillness of peace. You have a fight with someone. You're full of energy. There's a lot of ill will in the air. And there's a lot of tension. And it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you just walk out of the room. And you take a breath. And there's actually a moment of peace. You're still agitated. You're still wondering, why did this person do this horrible thing? Why is they, are they saying these horrible things? But just that moment of letting the breath out there is a moment of peace when you, just for a moment, let go of it. Comes right back, but the ability to notice, the capability of noticing when there is peace in your life is essential. Essential. Because we're all paying too much attention to what did we do wrong? Or what did the other person do wrong? Or how can we fix this moment and make it better than it was? This moment is just not acceptable. If it were just this way, it would be better. And we're building up a lot of energy that doesn't have anything to do with noticing that that moment was just fine. This one. Just this one. Uh, about a year ago, I was on retreat, and it was a, a two-week retreat, silent meditation retreat, and I got really still. I mean, really still. I have to tell you, it was quite beautiful. And I was fortunate enough to do a practice interview with Gil, and so I, I reported to him that there was this really beautiful stillness, and he got a, a big smile on his face, and I rushed on to tell him all the other things I needed to tell him, and he said, wait, stop. Let's go back to that stillness thing again. He said, I want you to remember that stillness. 
And I said, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it's always accessible to me. He said, no, no, I want you to remember it when it, it is not accessible to you. When you can't reach that stillness, to remember that it is possible, to remember that you are capable of experiencing stillness, that the possibility for peace exists even when it's not currently accessible. At the time, I didn't get it. You know, I said, okay, I think I get that. But over the last year, many is the time that I recalled that. And I recalled that stillness was possible, even though I was very agitated. I always remembered it when I was very agitated, of course, because I'd been set up for that. Which is what it's all about. This is what practice is about. Conditioning ourselves to be able to see what is really true. Not what we're expecting to see, not what we're habitually seeing, not what we expect to see, but what's really true. And sometimes it takes a turn, a sharp turn, to notice it. So, what it does is remind me that things are not hopeless. When it's feeling hopeless, this is hopeless. It's not getting better. The noise won't stop. I'm reminded that it's not hopeless. So, so what does hope mean to you? You know, is it bright and shiny? Is it subtle? Is it foolish? How do you feel about the word hope? Naive? Hope is naive? What is hope? Anxiety-provoking? I don't know if I've ever felt hope. So I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to read you a story by uh, Naomi Shihab Nye, who is a poet from San Antonio, Texas. And when I read this to you, what I want you to do is pay attention to what the story is and try to stick with the story. Try not to wander off into thoughts about, oh yeah, I've, I've been in a place like that, and oh, I know what she means by that. Try to stick with the story and notice what you feel. Notice whatever it is. Confusion, anger, upset, happiness, hope. I hope you feel hope, but that may not be what you feel when you hear this story. So this is called Wandering Around Albuquerque Airport Terminal. After learning my flight was detained four hours, I heard the announcement. If anyone in the vicinity of gate 4A understands Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days. Gate 4A was my own gate. I went there. An older woman in full traditional Palestinian dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor, wailing loudly. Help, said the flight service person. Talk to her. What's her problem? We told her the flight was going to be four hours late, and she did this. I put my arm around her and spoke to her haltingly. 
Shudawa Shubikduk Habibiti Stani Stani Shwei Min Fadlik Shobitsewi. I apologize for anybody who might understand this language. The minute she heard my words, she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought our flight had been canceled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for some major medical treatment the following day. I said, no, no, we're fine. You'll get there just late. Who's picking you up? Let's call him and tell him. We called her son, and I spoke with him in English. I told him I would stay with his mother till we got on the plane and would ride next to her, Southwest. She talked to him. Then we called her other sons just for the fun of it. Then we called my dad, and he and she spoke for a while in Arabic and found out, of course, they had 10 shared friends. Then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her? This all took up about two hours. She was laughing by then, telling about her life, answering questions. She had pulled a sack of homemade mamul cookies, little powdered sugar, crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts, out of her bag and was offering them to all the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the traveler from California, the lovely woman from Laredo, all were covered with the same powdered sugar and smiling. There are no better cookies. And then the airline broke out the free beverages from huge coolers, non-alcoholic, and two little girls on our flight, one African-American, one Mexican-American, ran around serving us all apple juice and lemonade, and they were covered with powdered sugar, too. And I noticed my new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant, green furry leaves, some medicinal thing. Such an old country traveling tradition, always carry a plant, always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked around at that gate of late and weary ones and thought, this, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world. Not a single person at this gate, once the crying and confusion stopped, has seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women, too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. Not everything is lost. You know, you go into an airport terminal, everybody doesn't want to be there. <laughs> Pretty much don't want to be here. And things go wrong, and somebody's screaming. If it's not some poor Palestinian woman who doesn't understand that you're not letting her on the plane crying on the floor, it's a baby crying somewhere, or somebody playing music loud, or all of this is typically something that you have the urge to protect yourself from, right? You want to just go, I don't want to see this, I want to, I want to escape from this, and there's this closing down that happens. The reason I love this story is the opposite happens with not very much encouragement, really. Just letting it happen. 
It has to do with where you focus. Are you focusing on, why is this poor woman crying? Are you focusing on, why doesn't somebody do something about this? I told you this story because I want to touch you one way or another. I want you to think it's dumb. I want you to say, oh, that's kind of sweet. I want you to feel something. Because I want to connect with you. Not because we're the same, or think the same, or feel the same, but because we are open to something happening, something feel, actually feeling something, actually being present for something. And I wanted it to be a story that wasn't just in your head. Now, maybe you don't relate, relate to Mamul cookies. But the, the powdered sugar all over everybody kind of got me. <laughs> I hate powdered sugar. And it's so different from all the suffering and injustice that we hear, the loud, harsh words. Um, I, I recently moved, and, and we didn't have a television for a while. And we set up the television, so today we decided we would watch the news. And we just... <sighs> Not very long later, we just turned it off and said, My God, who wants to listen to this? Everybody yelling at one another. And it requires this ability to be open to experience what it means to be open to other people requires noticing how you feel about things. I think the reason this has been on my mind is what I was noticing is that I was closing down. I was, oh, I don't want to have to look at that. I want to just not feel that. I want to not feel that. As opposed to just, okay, feeling that. Oh, just feeling that. And allowing it, allowing it to be true, whatever it is. We can notice agitation without being ruled by it. Agitation, agitation, agitation. I told this story the other day, so if you've, uh, but I'm going to do it again. One of the things that happens to me, uh, well, I'll be sitting, and I'm waiting for the bell to ring. Now, it's time, the bell's going to ring any moment. And, you know, my knee is hurting or my hip is hurting and I'm sitting there and finally the bell rings and what I notice is I've been really agitated but my body is not agitated. My body actually doesn't want to move. It sort of, it just notices that the stillness that is the temporary habit of the body, and I'm reluctant to move. Despite the fact that my hip is screaming for relief, breaking that, that stillness I feel at the end of the, re, the, the sit, oh, just noticing the body and the mind are not necessarily having the same experience. And if I look only at the mind, which is agitated, I might say, I'm agitated. But if I'm paying attention to more than just that, if I say, what else is going on here, 
maybe I'll notice, wow, I'm actually pretty still. What a surprise. And in that stillness, I notice there's some peace in that body that is sitting still. Huh. Despite the fact I can hardly wait for the bell to ring so I can move that leg. (laughs) The knowingness of the mindfulness allows you to pay attention to things that you're not paying attention to, things that you haven't been looking toward. But when you become to notice, when you come to notice If you look at something that you haven't been looking at, look for stillness, look for peace in your life. You'll notice it more often. Where I place my attention determines how I respond. Where I place my attention determines how I respond. It's easy if you choose something like um, a child. I have, I have a couple of grandkids that are just the delight of my life. And they're three and, and five boys. They're very rambunctious and they're very creative and interested in the world. And they'll be sitting around playing together, sweet as life. Oh, just so lovely. And all of a sudden it erupts and they're at each other's throats, throwing one another around the floor. And you say, what happened? (laughs) You know, they're just kids, and the energy builds up, and the energy has to explode. Now, if I see that as, oh, this is an eruption of energy, my response is going to be different than if I see it as, there they go again, why can't they be nice to one another? A perfect world, they would continue playing well together. If I get too attached to how I think it would be perfect if it were, I don't even notice the joy of their ebullience, their energy, and their, their expression of being able to move these bodies around. I won't notice that because I'm thinking that they should be this way. They should be another way. Now, that's an easy thing to look at. Let's take... Um, going to do something else here. So what I'd like you to do is think of somebody in your life. Uh, It helps if it's somebody that is, uh, that you really like. Think of somebody you really like, that you're close to, that you have enough relationship with that you've had some ups and downs, right? You know, sometimes you're feeling very benevolent toward them. Sometimes You can't believe you're keeping this person in your life? Think of that person. So you have that person in mind. And now what I'd like you to do is recall something about them that you really, really like. Something about them you really like. And notice how that feels to you. It's like an internal smile. I really like that about them.
Now we're going to put that over here on the left. And I want you to think about the last argument you had with them, about some terrible habit that they just can't seem to overcome. Something that really irritates you and fills you with ill will. And think about that, and and as you're thinking about that, notice how that feels in your body. Notice the contraction and the hardness and the tension of that bad habit. Now we're going to put that over here on the right. We have the thing on the left and the thing on the right. And I want you to consider that that person is not here doing this to you. These things that arose in you are all a consequence of your own thought processes, your own conditionings around things about someone. That person did not cause these things. These are your responses. These are your responses. And how you are looking at them. How you're thinking about them. And this is something you always have access to. So, when I am standing looking at my husband and he has once again done this thing that irritates me, I remember that I love him. It's quite inconvenient, but it keeps me from getting nasty. It changes the way I look at it. This is what he does. It's not malicious. This is just what he does. Okay. Now, the only difference in this is what is arising in me? What is the response in me? What am I available for? What am I putting my attention on? It isn't about whether he's good or I'm good or neither of us is good. It has to do with how am I experiencing this and how am I conditioning this moment for this experience? So Andrew Alinsky is a teacher at the Berry, uh, let's see, I get this, the name of it, Berry Center for Buddhist Studies. He teaches all about uh, uh, the teachings of the Buddha from an academic point of view. And he has this to say, sometimes mindfulness practice can involve such focused awareness that we lose track of inhabiting a wider space. The term clear awareness, sampajana, is sometimes teamed up with mindfulness to indicate a broader discernment of context. And perhaps we can think of thoughtfulness here as widening the scope still further to include the understanding of how we interact with others. I can't help but think if we all practice thoughtfulness as intensively as mindfulness, our relationships would be a good deal better. What he's expressing here is that even when we're mindful of something, it's possible to become so focused on this 
this is what I'm mindful of, that I'm not paying any, any attention to the environment in which it's occurring. You know, I'm not, not paying any attention to what's been brought to this moment. I'm just being mindful of, I'm going to pay attention all day to what happens in my belly. Now, this may be a great practice, but if you don't pay any attention to what else is happening, the amount of wisdom that you gain from it is somewhat limited. It turns out that in order to open ourselves to other people, the person we have to open ourselves to first is us. We have to be willing to be in this world with ourselves. With all of our warts and complaints and misgivings and sterling qualities, we have to be willing to be in this world with us. The practice of being open to us, to ourselves, to the self that we bring into this moment is the same practice that allows us to be open and generous and kind to other people. What do I mean by being open to myself? You know, I remember a time when I was really depressed. I mean, seriously depressed. And um, was pretty shut down. I'm pretty disgusted with myself. Well, if I, you know, if I were just better, if I'd done this more, if I'd done this right, I could have fixed that. How might I have done this? And I spent hours thinking about how I could have done something better to make my life better so that I was not depressed. And what I did was meta practice. For those of you who have never done meta practice, this is repeating phrases wishing yourself well, and wishing others well. So for about three months, all I did was metta for me, wishing myself well. I felt like a total fool, a total hypocrite. May I be happy. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be well. May I be peaceful and at ease. Two hours a day, three months, I just repeated these phrases. I felt so stupid. And then one day, I broke into tears. My heart broke open. And I said, wow, woman, you are really working hard. Wow. And it was, I was in there rooting for me, for how hard I was trying to just be. And it occurred to me, this is what it's about. I'm in here with me. I'm here. Whatever is happening, I'm here for you. Think about what that might mean for you to say, I'm here for me. I'm here for me. You know what? You, you have an instinctive feeling for what it would be like for someone else to say, I'm here for you. I'm going to stand up for you no matter what. But we very often don't give ourselves that. And it is that very thing, that willingness to be here with us, to have compassion for ourselves, 
that makes it possible to have compassion outward, that allows us to be okay with just letting things be as they are. I don't mean complacency. I mean, oh, this is how they are. Oh. A constant battle freezes the heart. If you're constantly clenching your fist, clench, 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 it freezes, it doesn't go anywhere, and you can't move it anymore. And it's not available for you to do anything else. If you can't say, I'm here with you just the way you are, to yourself, then any compassion you feel is just wishful thinking. You know, if we're only like this, it would be better. I wish this was better for you. I mean, for me, it's not possible. But for you, I hope it's better, right? No. The living, breathing heart has to be able to say, Ow! It hurts. It's okay. I know you're working on it. You're working on it. Now, on the other hand, what do you do about, you know, bad habits? <laughs> so, so I'm gonna, a, a person who's, who's very dear to me was telling me recently about her struggle with her schizophrenic daughter. The story is very sad and dangerous, actually dangerous. The daughter has become uh, periodically violent. And uh, she's a mother. So I think about that part in the middle of the Metta Sutta that uh, says, as a mother would risk her own life to protect her child, her only child. So toward all beings should one cultivate a boundless heart. And so this person says, you know, I'm her mother. I can't abandon her. And I said, you don't have to abandon her, but you don't have to get yourself in a dangerous place either. And it's a a place where she is trying to find the space for how she can love her daughter and not end up being physically, mentally, psychologically, financially damaged. So what is a boundless heart? Are Are there places you don't go? Are there things you don't do? Are there feelings you don't have? Does one put, place oneself in danger? When is it appropriate and when isn't it appropriate? Does unconditional love mean that one sacrifices oneself? I don't think so. This doesn't make any sense. Love does not mean fix. Love does not mean fix. Love does not mean make it better. Compassion towards oneself, compassion towards others, does not mean that you make everything better. 
It's really about the movement of the heart and the being there and the being willing to experience what is happening with yourself, with others. It's not that love is uninvolved in the process. Love is involved. But unconditional love requires wisdom and awareness of what is healthy and what is toxic. It's the same piece of wisdom that allows you to to feel compassion for yourself without falling into the well of self-pity. There's a place that you know that you can navigate to. You say, ah, I'm here. This is how it is. That's painful. I'm not going to do that anymore. You make a discernment. This is skillful. This is not skillful. And you choose. But if you don't see it, if you don't look at it, if you're not open to it, you'll never develop the wisdom to be able to make the choices. It's a practice. I can't tell this mother how to be with her daughter. I'm not living that life. But I can encourage her to care for her daughter without endangering her own life. I can tell her that she doesn't have to be the instrument of her daughter's salvation. We have thoughts about things, good, skillful thoughts, not so skillful thoughts. Somebody is doing something irritating to you on the highway, you want the cops to find them. Now, that thought arises. Do you entertain the thought? Do you develop an entire storyline about how this is going to happen? Or do you say, I hope nobody gets hurt? Where are you placing your energy and your attention? When you notice it, you can make a choice about that. If you never notice it, you just keep telling yourself the story about what a jerk this was. Without a clear awareness of the movement of the heart, we don't notice that. So what I'm here to implore you to do is to notice the movement of your heart. Notice the movement of your heart. Notice when you feel it, move, however brief, just like that moment of peace, however brief, notice it, notice it, that knowledge becomes something you can carry with you. It may ease what seems unbearable. It may lead to more kindness in your world. So I'm going to read you one more poem. This is by Stephen Levine, and it's called Meditation Blues. Sometimes it breaks my heart to watch my mind. Cold self-interest, insistent fear and judgment, whispered insults, vengeful fantasies, triumph and despair. A conditioned unfolding so impersonal We take it personally. (laughs) Sometimes 
aghast at the casual cruelty of even minor fears and celebrations. Sometimes it breaks my heart to watch my mind, and sometimes it stays broken long enough to touch even this pain with love. Sometimes the mercy washes even Mrs. Macbeth's hands, turns tragedy to grace, and makes it all worthwhile. Sometimes it breaks my mind to watch my heart. Those are my thoughts. Thank you. So, comments, questions, tomatoes, heartfelt responses, questions. How does it feel to you to consider touching yourself? Does it make sense to you to say, okay, I'm here with you, I'm, I'm in it, I'm, I'm here with you? Does that have any resonance for you? Yes, it does. Since I have the microphone. <laughs> if anyone else wants the microphone, please raise your hand. We have a taker. Well, I, I just wanted to say thank you because skillful means are so important and it's so hard sometimes when one doesn't find means with the heart <laughs> mm -hmm. to appreciate how important it is to see what direction lies happiness and peace and what direction lies strife and trouble so and yeah yeah thank you it it is it's difficult to know you know we we go through life with this um with a view of what's good right i know what's good i know what's good for me i know what being a good person looks like and whenever i fail at that i this is a bad thing lots of judgment Judgment, comparison, as if it didn't matter the conditions under which something occurs. So um, I'm thinking about uh, somebody gets out of a car and somebody walks up to them and says, how can you drive that car? You've got to be kidding me. Why are you, what's wrong with you that you're driving that car? That car is a polluter. I could see you coming down the road for a mile. How can you drive that car? The person says, hey, it's not my car. I just got out of it. Is this kind of what life is like, you know? We don't always know the conditions that comes to this moment about other people, or even about ourselves. If we're not looking for it, we don't see it. 
If we're not looking for it, we don't see it. When I'm hardest on myself, what I notice is uh, not very flattering. (laughs) Not very flattering. I could tell you some really bad stories about me. But I also notice when that's happening, there's usually something else going on. Like, I'm afraid of something. I'm anxious about something. I'm... uh, Maybe my stomach is upset about something. You know, I ate something wrong. And then I'm able to look at what's, what's happening here, and I recognize an agitation and say, oh, this isn't me. This is just what's happening right now. I get it. I get it. And then I'm not judging myself, making it worse. And I'm able to say, okay, so you stayed up all night. You didn't get enough sleep. All of this agitation, irritation right now is because you're sleep-deprived. So, okay, you deserve this agitation for not going to bed last night, but let's not make it worse. Know that you didn't get enough sleep, and therefore you need to be particularly careful. You need to be careful about who you're talking to, how you're talking to them, how you're talking to yourself being aware of the context, the conditions that you've set up for yourself is really important to giving room to your heart to move in an appropriate way. Does this make sense? You know, you wake up from a bad dream. You've just slammed somebody in the jaw in this dream. And you wake up and you still have some of that agitation in your body. Well, if you're waking up agitated, it doesn't mean the world is nuts. It just means you woke up agitated. So notice that. Notice that. Say, oh boy. (laughs) Oh boy. Agitation this morning. Hmm. And know that that's what you're bringing into the moment. Doesn't make you a bad person. Nor does it mean that you're justified in doing anything you want. (laughs) Right? You can just say, oh, that's what's going on now. Okay, got to watch for that. Or the opposite could be true. You're really happy. Nothing, nothing is going to make this any different. Things are just great today. And you're not paying attention that you're about to drive over the curb. (laughs) Because you're just so happy that you're not paying attention. Just be aware of how things are going, happening in your experience. It's neither good nor bad, it just is. And when you're aware of that, you can allow that heart to do what it wants to do. It can be, it can be more, it can feel safe. It becomes okay to be vulnerable because you know what's going on. You're not in control. No, not in control. But you can take a deep breath 
and allow it to be true. Oh, this is what's happening. Okay. I get it. Huh. Been better. <laughs> Been worse. Any comments? Okay. I wish you all an open heart. It really, really is much better than the steel trap heart. Blessings on you all. Thank you.